is Our American Stories, and our producer, Jesse Edwards, had the chance to talk with actor Jamie Farr, best known for his role as Corporal Klinger on the hit TV series MASH, which premiered way back on CBS in 1972. Jamie is now the host of MASH, the best by far, a week-long collection of his personal favorite episodes, only on MeTV, America's number one all-classic television network. MeTV will present the record-setting final episode, Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen, and Jamie will be joined by many of the cast members and creators of MASH for the original special, MeTV Remembers the MASH Finale. Here's Jesse's report. With us is Jamie Farr. Uh, thank you for being on the show, sir. Oh, my pleasure, Jesse. Uh, I, I, I love your title, too, Our American Stories. What a wonderful, wonderful title. <laughs> you were born in Toledo, Ohio, to Lebanese-American parents. Uh, can you tell us about them? Who were your parents, and, and what was your childhood like, just to start off? Well, my, uh, yeah, my dad was uh, is from Lebanon. He was from a little village there called Jibjanin, and he and uh, his brother Emil, uh, actually his brother was Amin, my dad's name was Salim, uh, they came to America at the turn of the century, uh, 1900, and of all places, they uh, uh, why they went there, coming from Lebanon, but they wound up in Montana first. <laughs> I don't know why you would go there. <laughs> and then they settled in uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. My mother was born in America, uh, and then as a little girl was taken back to Lebanon by my grandfather and grandmother, and uh, she lived over there in the, in the one of the villages in Lebanon for a few years, and then returned to America. And one of the stories that I tell is that they stopped in Marseille, France, before coming back to uh, New York City uh, to pick up a cousin. And the cousin was late. I don't know where the cousin was coming from. And the mother of the cousin said, "Oh, please, you mustn't go back now. You must take our son to America." So my grandfather said, okay, we'll, we'll not take the uh, ship that we have the tickets on, and we'll wait for your son and take him back to America. The ship that they were supposed to be on was the Titanic. Wow. So I wrote in a book, I want to thank uh, a cousin I never met who saved my life before I was born, because I think my mother was about seven years old at that time. Wow. That's anyway, a my uh, mom and dad met in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. They got married. Uh, they, uh, they, the, the first, uh, child in the family was my sister, Yvonne, and she was born in Sioux City, Iowa, and then they moved to Toledo, Ohio, and that's where I was born, and, uh, it was, uh, great growing up, uh, uh, in, in the neighborhood. My neighborhood was very ethnic. They had, uh, Lebanese people, Jewish people, Italian people, uh, Greek people, and then when you uh, went over to the other side of the, the the town, there was all the Hungarian people, and then you went to the other side of town, there were all the Polish people. <laughs> it was like a little Chicago, you know, there were pockets of, of people, and it was a wonderful time growing up. We were all good, close friends. People didn't lock their doors in those days, you know, and if somebody was out of work, families would take food over to them. It was just a wonderful, wonderful time growing up. I have fond memories of it. You got into acting pretty early. Was it true that you won an acting contest when you were just 11 years old? Yeah, it was a place we called, uh, it was something similar to the Boys Club and Girls Club of America. It was called Friendly Center, and they used to have a talent uh, night on. And uh, we we stole some vaudeville act or whatever it was from one of the pages of one of the uh, comedy uh, magazines that used to come out. And, uh, yeah, we, we won the second prize. It was uh, $2 uh, 
uh, a gal that uh, does a tap dance with ruby slippers. Uh, she <laughs> she won the first prize, which might have been four dollars or something like that. But I used to buy a magazine called Theater Arts, and the in the Theater Arts magazine behind the the pages for advertising was a uh, advertising for the Pasadena Playhouse in California. So I said, oh boy, I think I'd like to go there. So I. Uh, cashed in all my uh, savings bonds and war stamps and all the stuff that you used to collect when I was growing up and uh, went there. And while I was there, I got discovered by a talent scout from MGM. I screen tested for my very first movie, which was Blackboard Jungle with Glenn Ford and Sidney Poitier and uh, introduced Rock Around the Clock with Bill Haley and the Comets. And that started my career. So in uh, October of 1972, you were hired for just one day's work as Corporal Klinger on MASH. What was that time in your life like, and how did how did people initially react to uh, a guy wearing dresses back then? I mean, it was a pretty big deal, wasn't it? Well, the first thing uh, is that, uh, you know, you have many ups and downs in your career. At that particular time, it was one of my down times in my career, <laughs> so I needed to work desperately. And I got called in not knowing what the part was. Uh, I showed up at the studio, was ushered into a trailer where they had this woman's Army Corps uniform, and I said, oh, I must be dressing with the actress. They said, no, that's yours. Put it on. <laughs> and I put that on with those big high heels that I had. And he, the, the producer started laughing, took me on the soundstage. Everybody was laughing. And then they finally showed me the script. And I had these lines that I didn't know who the character was. I just said it. I was very fortunate. Uh, they paid me $250 for the day. Uh, I, I, I did the show, uh, and, and I went home not thinking anything of it. Uh, and then they kept calling me back and calling me back, and uh, then they kept adding to the character where I began to find a sense of who he was and what he was trying to do. And then in the uh, third year, they uh, they put me under contract to the series. Your character always kind of reminded me, I, th- I think, uh, that Kramer, like from Seinfeld, kind of uh, adapted uh, some yeah, of the technique. Yeah, you're absolutely right, yes. Uh, my wife even said that. She used to say, yeah, Jamie Kramer is uh, kind of a clinger uh-huh. <laughs> in the Seinfeld show. So what, what are you up to these days? you got a special on my TV that's airing uh, tonight and going on through uh, to Veterans Day. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, exactly. Well, MeTV, uh, you know, been showing MASH and along with a lot of uh, the other great shows, classic TV shows that they uh, that they have on their channel. And they said, can you pick out ten shows? I go, oh, boy, that's a tough thing to do. <laughs> and then we'll let you introduce them on there, and then we'll play the final episode, which was the highest-rated episode in the history of television, on Veterans Day, November the 11th. So I said, well, okay, great. I love your, your channel, your network. It's just fantastic. I watch all those shows. So it was really difficult for me to pick out ten of them. But I, I did it, and I used uh, uh, my reasoning for picking out ten shows. They're not necessarily the greatest written shows, but they, uh, they have a, uh, a personal attachment to me and meaningful things to me. And so that's why I selected them. And it starts tonight. And uh, I hope the audience enjoys them. And if they've seen the shows before, that they will enjoy them again. And if they've never seen them, they should, uh, they should tune in because it is a wonderful, wonderful television series. Great job on that, Jesse. That's Jamie Farr. That's me, TV, and a fellow Lebanese-American, along with Danny Thomas. Not a lot of us. And so great job, Jamie. And one of the great characters ever in the history of TV, Corporal Klinger. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our weekly segment with Nate Scott from For the Win, USA Today's leading sports site at fdw.usatoday.com. And it's such a great time of the year. And, Nate, thanks so much for joining us, as always. Of course. Happy to be here. Well, let's talk about the Cubs. We were just joking before the the segment started. I said, hey, look, Nate, we're going to talk a little about the Cubbies. And Alex chimed in, hey, you're showing your bias here. I mean, what about the Indians? Nate, who, you know, you got a lot of traffic there. You're listening to folks from all over the country. Who is rooting for the Indians? Everybody I talk to around the country is pulling for the Cubs, including people who aren't Cub fans. Yeah, uh, I think they've got the state of Ohio pretty much locked up. And other than that, it um, seems that everyone's pulling for the Cubbies this year, which is, uh, I don't know, when a team been been, I know the Indians haven't had a ton of success as of late either, but when you've gone since 1908, it's, it's hard not to pull for the Cubbies. Yeah, and they give you all those shots when you're watching on TV of the grandmas in that first row. I mean, the TV coverage is really working the audience carefully, and it's not just the stars. Who you know, I love Bill Murray and I love Eddie Vedder, but who cares about them? It's that little old lady they keep going to in that front row who's gripping onto the bar and just begging for just one in her lifetime. And you got to be pulling for her, Nate. <laughs> exactly, and just you know, Wrigley Field, the the, the setting, the drama, the fans you're just you know you know I, I want them to win for steve bartman so we can be done with this <laughs> i hear you i hear you we're, so we had originally i think we, we were both sort of you know both lining up with the cubs but it looks like the pitching of the indians is tough and you know going back home for two what does it look like nate what are the handicappers saying what are the odds makers saying you know i wrote today that if anyone can do it it's the cubs just because they've got a, a lineup that's sort of uniquely built to play uh, in the AL. Um, they've got a lot of bats. They've got a guy who's a natural sort of DH in Kyle Schwarber. That being said, you know, the Indians are, have this team that if they can get to the fourth or fifth inning with a lead, their relievers are so good that they can kind of shut the game down from there. So the Cubs sort of find themselves in this terrifying situation where if they don't get a run by the fifth inning, it might be over. So... Uh, I, I, I think the Indians are going to pull it out, but um, I'm hoping it goes seven and we get a real series out of this. Well, let's talk about the uh, NBA because there's been a lot of talk in the trades and the papers and I'm sure just around the office about this new rise of the NBA with all these great stars and all these great stories. And America's game, which I think for the last couple of decades, Nate, has clearly been the NFL, whatever your proclivities, they dominate. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the rise of the NBA and some of the new stars that are coming up, Nate. Let's talk about a few of them. Yeah, I mean, this is a really exciting time for the NBA. I think they've figured out a way in the way that NFL, even NFL and even, you know, especially Major League Baseball, NHL, they haven't figured out a way to market their stars. The NBA is really good at it. Um, this for a number of reasons. One, the guys, you know, it's not like the NFL. The, the helmets aren't covering their faces. They're smiling into the camera. They're known. They give interviews. They do really great with that. Um, you know, the LeBrons have been huge for a while. Steph Curry was the next breakout star. But there are a bunch of young guys coming up right now who I think are, are ready to take over that mantle. And, uh, you know, they're going to be household names soon. Let's talk, about, let's talk about D'Angelo Russell. Let's start with the Lakers. Uh, D'Angelo Russell, uh, 20-year-old kid, came out of Ohio State last year, was playing behind Kobe Bryant. When Kobe Bryant's there, there's no light for anyone else. He's like a, a black hole. He just sucks up all the, the energy in the yep. room and all the attention. 
he's gone now, and this is D'Angelo Russell's team. He, he's a scoring first point guard. He's a great passer. You know, he's not Magic Johnson, but he'll have moments that remind you of that. And, uh, you know, if you can be a big hit in L.A. and you can win some games, then, then you're going to be a star. And I think he's sort of the guy who's going to take that role over. And what about Carl Anthony Towns? What, what about him and the Timberwolves? Oh, Carl Anthony Towns is going to be, you know, he was probably the fifth best player in the NBA last year as a rookie, as a 19-year-old. He could be, there, there's no limit on him. He's, he's about seven feet tall. He can shoot three. He can shoot from anywhere. He can jump from anywhere. He can block anything. Um, you know, I think a lot of people got excited about Anthony Davis a few years ago as sort of this evolutionary player, and Davis is still phenomenal. But Carl Anthony Towns might even be better than him. So, really, just the no limit to you know he's like a bigger LeBron James, which is impossible. That is scary. And you know, one of the things Nate that I think has happened is because of the way. The Warriors sort of advance this uh, type of offense that allows for much more shooting and a lot more skills and a lot more openings for great passing. And this game is just at the at its peak in terms of the way and the nature of how it's played. Um, what to what degree is that allowing more of these stars to emerge that we're seeing just Absolutely. better skills? Absolutely, and you know, people kind of for a while hated on the jump shooting and. You know, uh, that, that it's changing the game. Kids don't work on fundamentals anymore. They just shoot three-pointers now. But what you're seeing now is you're seeing these guys like Carl Anthony Towns, like uh, Chris Tapps Porzingis on the Knicks, uh, like Joel Embiid in Philadelphia, who are seven feet tall and can shoot three-pointers, which we've just never seen before. We've never seen players who can do this before. These are guys who can dribble, they can pass, they can shoot, and they're seven feet tall, which is, you know, it's it's like uh, video games. It, 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 it seems impossible. Yeah, and Dirk Nowitzki might have been one of the only guys out there that could regularly do that for the Mavs. Yeah. But now we got He's all these the... guys. Exactly. Very scary. We thought we'd never see anyone like Nowitzki again, and here they are. No, you thought that was an outlier, and now every team's got a Dirk Nowitzki, it looks like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's scary. Let's talk a little about uh, uh, athletes getting into the business and marketing game. Uh, let's talk about Gronk. And that's Rob Gronkowski, for those of you who don't know him. And tell us a story about, well, what he's getting into. These guys are just becoming marquee stars, Nate, earlier and earlier. Uh, what's he selling? Well, he's, he's, he's come on as a spokesman for Lyft, uh, which is a rideshare company, kind of like Uber. Um, and it's really hilarious that they, they've had these things where they have uh, famous athletes go undercover as as drivers, and with some people, they can really get into character. They give them good costumes. Rob Gronkowski is not fooling anyone with his <laughs> costume. He just put on a wig and tried to talk in a different voice, which of course you forgot about thirty seconds in. But it's really a fantastic clip of of Gronk trying to fake people into thinking he's just an Uber driver. Let's take a listen. Hey there, hey there. Welcome to Lyft. Oh, I, th- I think that was perfect. Let me practice again. Hey there, welcome to Lyft. Ah, oh, there we go. Little high-pitched voice is perfect. Are you a Detroit Lions fan? Because I'm, I'm a Patriots fan. And, like, <laughs> it hurt my feelings that you said you were a Detroit Lions fan. The one guy I want to meet is Tom Brady. Yeah, but he's married. So he's, like, off limits, you know? I mean, I'm not trying to get with him. <laughs> I mean, I just want to meet him. I love that guy. Okay, good. Yeah, I got, like, four posters of him. 
You know, it would be so cool to, like, meet those players. Yeah. It would be so cool. Maybe it'll happen. What if you met Rob Gronkowski? I have met him. You have? Yeah, he's a great guy. Where? A bar downtown called Society on High. You did not meet him at Society on High. <laughs> you just met Rob Gronkowski. Wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> What's up? Belgrade. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, you went through with it, dude. I was not at Society on High. What's up? Hi. <laughs> yeah, the Gronk better keep his day job. Is all we can say. <laughs> Yeah, he, he he dropped his character in about two seconds there. That high voice character, yeah. Yeah, it didn't fit. Hey, last but not least, Nate, these overtime rules at the NFL, you know, they keep doing what they're doing, and it makes no sense. When are they going to just give it up and just go with the, the college regime? Because college is just so much more fun the way they do it. Talk about that in the last uh, yeah. minute we have. I'm just so blown away by this. You know, the NFL overtime rules have been broken forever. They've known they've been broken. They've changed the rule to try and fix them. And, and all the while, this, this fix is staring them in the face. It's the college OT rules. It's more fun. It's more exciting. And, you know, these arguments they have that it'll screw up the stats and stuff like that, just, you know, we don't count two-point conversions as touchdowns. Just, just throw out the stats at the end of regulation and give fans something that want to see. Or end it in ties, but right now it's not working the yeah, way it so is. It's the worst of both worlds, Nate. It's the worst of both worlds. And uh, looking forward to talking to you next week. We'll have, an en- we'll have an ending to this World Series, and it's been a great one. I'm looking forward to the next couple of nights. I know you are. And uh, then we'll start talking about, well, what matters most to me, uh, the NBA, and what matters to most to so many fans here, and that's the NFL And last but not least, Nate, we did not talk about college football, I think, for the first time this fall. But next week, we'll really dig down and drill down on that as well. This is Lee Habib, Nate Scott, joining us as always from For the Win. Nate, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And you can find Nate at ftw.usatoday.com. His whole team does great work there. And it isn't just today's sports stories. It's just good, fun stuff about sports and sometimes even more. More after these messages. Stories where we love great stories about music, sports, love, death, business, and history. But one of our favorite subjects is generosity and the generous things Americans do for each other and the world. And that's why we're excited to bring you our sweet charity series of stories about how private giving solves public problems. And these stories are adapted from the Almanac of American Philanthropy 
And bringing them to you is Carl Zinsmeister. A 15-year-old boy opens his local newspaper and starts reading a serialized science fiction story about travel between Mars and Earth. He's hooked. Gonzo. The next thing you know, he's spending all his time thinking about flying through space and filling notebooks with scribbled ideas about exactly how to make that happen. Today, that's not an unusual story, but when the teenaged Robert Goddard began to have his high-altitude dreams, it was 1898. At that point, space travel was only a fantasy. Pure H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds, sci-fi fantasy. But Goddard was passionate and serious and stubborn. And those are the highly combustible ingredients of invention. And once his imagination had been torched by literature, he set out to make the fantasy real using science. As a student at Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Massachusetts, Robert Goddard wrote speculative papers about high-speed travel in a vacuum. In 1907, in the basement of the college physics department, he fired a cylinder he had filled with gunpowder. The resultant roar and huge cloud of smoke marked his first moment of public attention. Fortunately for history, he was not expelled. Goddard continued on to graduate school at Clark University, and by 1912 he had worked out much of the math on using rocket propulsion to reach the moon. In 1914, he received two U.S. patents for the construction of rockets. But even after he became a professor at Clark, he had no luck at getting other academics or journalists or the government research groups to take him seriously. In Washington, federal officials just smirked at his visions. He tried to recruit engineers from MIT and other universities to work with him, but no one would sign on. In 1920, the New York Times printed a long editorial savaging Goddard for romanticizing moon travel. They said a rocket would be likely to explode, to veer wildly, to kill innocent bystanders. And the Times insisted that a rocket would fail altogether in the vacuum of space. Professor Goddard, sneered the article, seems to lack the knowledge ladled out daily in high schools. Other journalists piled on. After one of his tests in Worcester, the local newspaper carried the snippy headline, Moon Rocket, Mrs. Target by 238,799 and a half miles. Scorched by these attacks and unable to get government or academic funding, Goddard had to pay for his experiments out of his own pocket, and the cost soon overwhelmed his salary. Then, in 1929, he was introduced to philanthropist Daniel Guggenheim. Most Americans know the Guggenheim name as founders of a prominent art museum, but the mining family also had a deep interest in flight and aerospace. Daniel's son, Harry Guggenheim, had volunteered in World War I as one of the first U.S. Navy pilots, and starting in the 1920s, the family became America's patron saints of flight. Nearly all of our country's schools of aeronautical engineering on college campuses were set up by the Guggenheims at MIT, Caltech, Stanford, Harvard, Syracuse, Georgia Tech, Michigan, and elsewhere. Guggenheim support eventually yielded the Mars landers and the probes which traveled to Jupiter and Saturn, Pluto, and beyond. The Guggenheims also donated much of the money needed to make commercial flight practical. They gave large cash prizes for solutions to problems like bad weather and reliable navigation and night landings. They paid for the design of wind tunnels and gyroscopes and actual planes. They bankrolled weather tracking services for pilots and gave loans for the purchase of the first commercial airliners. 
and by adopting Robert Goddard and funding his advanced ideas at a time when the government and academic establishments were ignoring him or mocking him, the Guggenheims also became the patron saints of rocketry and space travel. Throughout the peak of Goddard's research career, from 1930 through the mid-40s, they provided a salary, materials, and research funds so the shy genius could prove out his theories. With this Guggenheim support, Goddard set up an experimental base in Roswell, New Mexico, and quietly worked away, completely out of the public eye and scientific mainstream. More than once, he offered some of his findings to U.S. military officials, but no one seemed to understand the importance of what he was developing. That is, until the German V-2 rockets began to terrorize Britain during World War II. Suddenly, the world realized that rockets were a powerful technology with many practical applications. Robert Mooney Goddard was looked up, and his work was put on a fast track. Other scientists were astonished at how much he had learned and refined and proven in his Guggenheim-supported desert base. With Goddard's work as the starting point, rockets were routinely lifting vital military and civil payloads into orbit in little more than a decade. America became the world leader in advanced propulsion and space travel. And it was basically all thanks to one lonely scientist and the far-seeing philanthropic family that believed in him and donated the resources he needed without strings through thick and thin. Without the Guggenheim funding of the academic labs that got the U.S. in the air and the Guggenheim sponsorship of Robert Goddard, father of the multi-stage rockets that allowed Americans to be the first men on the moon, it's quite possible the U.S. could have been and also ran in aerospace. And Robert Goddard might have been a genius lost to history. The world would be a less safe place if the pioneering discoveries in aerospace had been made in Germany or Russia rather than the sands of New Mexico. Goddard earned 214 separate aeronautical patents, and even today, every rocket and plane takeoff depends on many of his innovations. After World War II, the same federal government that had ignored Robert Goddard while he was living acknowledged the nation's debt to him during our national emergency by awarding his widow and his financial patrons at the Guggenheim Foundation the largest ever government patent settlement for infringing on their work. So, philanthropy extends a lot further into American society than you might realize, sometimes even into national defense. And that was Carl Zinsmeister, and the series is Sweet Charity, and it's brought to us by our partners at the Philanthropy Roundtable. And by the way, you can go back to some of our This Day in History segments as well, because you'll hear some sweet charity there too. In particular, you'll hear it in Bernie Marcus's piece, and his commitment to giving back. There's a Jewish concept called tzedakah. Uh, Christians have it. It's called tithing. And Arthur Brooks has written about this in really remarkable ways, talking about, in the end, the generosity, the overwhelming generosity of the American people in a book, and I think his best book, called Who Really Cares? And it tracks who gives around this country. And it turns out it's a lot of the working poor. And as a percentage of their income, and particularly in the United States South, they give disproportionately more than anybody else in the entire country. Again, that series, the Sweet Charity series, which is all about generosity and how private giving solves public problems. We're going to be hitting that each week with the help of Carl, a terrific writer, and he works for the Philanthropy Roundtable. And the source is the Almanac of American Philanthropy, filled with such great stories about American generosity. This is Lee Habib. 
This is Our American Stories. To hear all of our work, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. American stories and as you can tell one of the papers we love is the Wall Street Journal I sometimes think it should be called America's Journal because I think the title is a misnomer it makes people think of if you're not a Wall Street person or you're not trading or you're not some big business CEO it's not a paper for you but it is in fact my wife grabs it for me and grabs the personal journal right out of my hands which is where I like to start too and I care a lot about news and business but we love to talk to Wall Street Journal writers, and one of, our, one of our favorite topics is just how to get along in the workplace and the workplace. We talk a lot about work here on Our American Stories because Americans spend a lot of time working, and working is a really meaningful part of all of our lives. And the title of this story was The Big Benefits of a Little Small Talk. I'm going to start with the opening paragraph or two and then bring in the writer of this great piece, and that's Jennifer Wallace. It starts like this. Anyone who passes regularly through busy public spaces knows that one casualty of our obsession with digital devices has been small talk. With our eyes glued to our smartphones, fewer of us engage anymore with people whom we don't know well. But are we missing something in this loss of idle chit-chat? And that is a superb start to an excellent piece. And Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much. You know, I had this, uh, you know, I loved talking people up. I was a, a small talker all my life. But lately, I've been always on that phone. And the other day, I had a little time to myself. I got into an elevator with four people. And you know what I did? I, I did what I promised myself I'd never do. Rather than engage those folks, I just went to my phone to pretend to be on the phone because it was easier than just talking to a stranger, Jennifer. And I thought, you weak jerk. That's what I thought to myself. <laughs> So, so talk to me about, before we get into the piece, what, what yeah. got you to, you know, you're a writer and generally the things must mull on your mind before you write about them. What personally led you to this, this space? Well, it's funny. It's a few points um, of reference that, that got me here. One was I'm a writer, so I spend a lot of time alone. Um, and I don't work in, I'm a freelance writer, so I write for the Wall Street Journal and other publications. So I work at home all day. And I found myself 
making small talk with people, you know, if I got a salad to go or just finding people on the sidewalk to chat with because I was deprived of conversation all day long, uh, you know, other than with my kids and my husband. Um, so I started finding that when I had these little bits of conversation, I would get a boost in happiness. And I thought, then I thought to my father and mother, who are now both retired, and how important small talk has become to them. And they're, you know, my dad's friends with the guy at Chipotle who makes his salad every day, and my mother's friends when she's shopping in, you know, the mall, she's friends with the saleswomen. And I thought, you know, if, there's something about interacting with people in a small way um, that brings us these great boosts of happiness. And I found that if we could be more aware of it, we could harness this, uh, this, this power that we're unaware of. I mean, I think when you were in the elevator looking down at your phone, I think we do that because, one, we don't think we're going to get anything out of it. And, two, we don't think anybody else wants to talk to us. But study after study after study shows that not only do we get a boost from happiness, but that almost 99.9% of people get something out of that interaction as well. So you're very unlikely to be rejected uh, by starting up a little small talk. Yeah, and I think the problem is that so many other people are connected to their devices or have those headphones on. How do you start a conversation with somebody who's got a headset on, Jennifer? It's impossible. So uh, one of the researchers, uh, Nicholas Epley, who's up uh, at the University of Chicago, was doing these studies on small talk. Um, and one of the studies he looked at was commuters and how commuters, you know, even though we're in close proximity to each other, we often don't interact. And so he, he found in his, in his research that, you know, commuters who did interact got a big boost in um, in their happiness level during during that their commute, and what he decided to do was to give up his smartphone. He he saw this huge boost in happiness. He saw that people enjoyed their commutes uh, better, and so he now uses just a regular phone so that he is not pulled to that smartphone. So there's nothing else for him to do on his commute, and he said it's changed his life. You bet, and I think it would change a lot of people's life act, lives actually. And I think, imagine writers, I think it actually can change writers' lives because so many of my writer friends say they're distracted by the the never-ending interaction with social media. Let's talk a little bit about empathy. Before we get into some tips for people on small talk, you write a bit about empathy in this column. Talk about how small talk actually enhances the talent or the, the ability to empathize. Right. I think it's not just for adults, but also for kids. So... Often in our communities today, we are um, we're insulated. We hang out with the same group of people who usually think the same way we do and look the same way we do. And what small talk does is it, it can bridge divides, the natural divides of race, of class, of interests. And being able to talk with people in a small way who are different than you, I think helps to broaden your circle of caring. And I talk in the article about uh, how small talk can actually help build empathy in children. Um, Having your children look at you, engage with the waitress who's serving your food, thanking her, asking her how her day is, 
thanking the bus driver. It, this builds, uh, you know, it shows that you don't just care about the people closest to you, your family and close friends, but it shows your children actually on earth we're here to care about the people outside of our little circles. We're all connected, and small talk, I think, helps connect all of us. And so let's d- dig down uh, for mm-hmm. people who aren't good at small talk, because I think very often we think of these things as a performance, and we're judging ourselves and thinking, well, I'm not that interesting. What do I say? How do I, I'm at a party. How do I mingle? I think most of us worry about these things. So let's talk about some tips there's the ten sure. five. Let, there's the ten five rule. I found that fascinating. What is that all it is, about? It is fascinating. So they teach this at uh, hotel training classes uh, for people who are in the front office of hotels. And so when they see a guest coming at ten feet away, they smile and make eye contact. At five feet away, they say hello. So it just helps you gauge a little bit of, of what's appropriate. You know, you're not going to try to engage with somebody who's 10 feet away. That's too far. But when they come close to you, you know, in your inner space, that's when you can engage and just say hi. Um, if you're, you just mentioned if you're at a party. So let's say you're at a, a, a party or the holidays are coming up. Uh, find common ground. So if you're there and you don't know many people, Ask somebody else, start a conversation by saying, How, hi, I'm, I'm Jenny. How do you know the host? And it will prompt a story that can make it very easy for you to follow up, or they could follow up with you and say, how do you know the host? And that's an easy conversation starter. Um, if you're you know, at a networking event um, and you're, again, alone, you don't know many people, go up to somebody and say, this is my first one of these things, or I haven't been to one in a while. Do you find these useful? Do you go to a lot of these? What do, you, what do you, you know, how do you follow up after these? And just ask people questions. Being a little bit vulnerable can, you know, and looking a little candid can make the person you're talking to a little more candid back to you. I love that you say here, embrace ignorance. Uh, why, why those yeah. words? Um, well, I think a great conversation starter, especially for me as a journalist, is I start almost every conversation with a question. I And I think we can learn so much from people. And I think starting with a question, uh, you know, let's say you're on a on a train commuting into work, and you're sitting next to someone, and you start talking, and you find out that they work in renewable energy. That's an example I give in the article. They work in renewable energy, and you say to them, you know, I have no idea how wind power actually works. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So learning something from these conversations. Those are authentic conversations when you can learn something and it makes small talk more meaningful. Indeed. And by the way, people are willing to open up when you actually ask them about themselves rather than worrying about yourself. And so interestingly enough, it seems like almost all the advice is to well, stop worrying about yourself, turn it outwards, and you'll be shocked at how people react to you. Uh, What about asking exciting questions? Talk about that. Yeah, so if, it, you know, instead of just um, one of the experts I spoke to say you can make only, you know, almost any conversation more interesting by taking it to the next level. So um, what the expert said, you know, if somebody says, you know, oh, it's so cold outside, you could say, do you, you know, what's the coldest you've ever been? Now, this is a risky question. This is a, sort of a risky way to go. So you want to be able to read the person that you're talking to. Is this somebody who would, who, you know, one who has time to engage in a deeper conversation? So maybe you don't ask that in the elevator. Uh, but two, is this somebody, you know, who would, who might uh, be receptive to a deeper conversation? 
And last but not least, it's always the exit. And how do we yeah. exit gracefully? You got about 30 seconds. Exit gracefully. Tell us how to do I'll this. I'll exit gracefully. So before we go, I'm going to add this one more tip. So sending somebody a verbal cue. Instead of just saying, nice to meet you, you could say, since we only have a few more seconds, I had one more question for you. And that gives them a single signal that it's time to wrap up. Yeah, because the exit strategy is always the hardest. Well, actually, the entrance is hard and the exit's hard. <laughs> uh, Jennifer, thanks so much for what you do at the Wall Street Journal, and thanks for this piece. Thanks so much. You bet. This is Lee Habib, the big benefits of a little small talk. Jennifer Wallace, the Wall Street Journal. And go to WSJ.com. That's WSJ.com to read this and many more great stories. Better still, subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. It's America's Journal. This is Our American Stories. stories and now we bring you the story of perhaps the most famous musician and escape artist of all time Harry Houdini who died on this day in history from of all things a punch to the stomach in 1926 and my goodness a whole lot of other things could have killed Harry Houdini and by the way our this days in history as always are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College sit back and relax as we hear this story of a mysterious man who is forever a part of our American psyche. At the height of his career, illusionist Harry Houdini wowed audiences with his death-defying escapes. A typical stunt for Houdini had him tied up in ropes and suspended over a vat of flesh-eating acid. If anyone came through the door to help him, Houdini would plunge into the cauldron of doom. How's that for high drama? But even in his earliest days, Harry Houdini was well acquainted with adversity. Houdini was born Eric Weiss in Budapest on March 24, 1874. His poverty-stricken family immigrated to the United States when Houdini was four years old. Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer Ken Silverman. Houdini had a difficult childhood. I mean, his father was a, an unemployed rabbi. He had come to America and tried to get work in Appleton, Wisconsin. He had barely enough money to, for food and clothing. The rabbi and his wife, Cecilia, struggled to support their seven children. Young Houdini did what he could to help earn money. Dorothy Young appeared on stage with Houdini in his later years. Young says that by the time he was nine years old, Houdini was already a showman. He took his cap and went down to the village square of Appleton, Wisconsin, and he would ad-lib and do a few little tricks. Then he would go home. He placed all the coins in his hair and a few on his shoulder, and he, he went in carefully, he said, Mom, shake me. And she took his shoulders and shook him, and all the coins fell to the floor. And he said, see, Mom, God helps those who help themselves. In search of a better life, the Weiss clan moved to Brooklyn, New York in 1887. There, the 13-year-old Houdini discovered his true calling. His mother gave him a magic set when he was, I don't remember, 10 years old or something. 
as a reward for uh, bringing money into the house. By the time he was 16, he was already doing uh, magic, and by the time he was 18 or so, you know, he was performing professionally. The first feat for Eri Weiss was to come up with a catchy name. He adopted the last name of French magician Robert Houdin and Americanized Eri to Harry. And presto changeo, Harry Houdini was created. Nancy Leschke is the spokesperson for the Houdini Historical Center in Appleton, Wisconsin. He started out as a pretty traditional magician in the vaudeville circuit and, you know, performing at dime museums and theaters with other acts as part of a, you know, a ten-act bill. While performing at Coney Island, 20-year-old Harry met a young singer, 18-year-old Bess Ranner. They were married two weeks later on June 22, 1894. Houdini's new bride soon joined his act just as he was starting to take off. Master illusionist Penn and Teller. Houdini's big progression was actually using uh, the news uh, as a stage. Uh, he did tricks that were designed not for how they looked on stage, but rather for how they'd look written up in print. He really caught on to what attracted the public's attention. He started something called a challenge act, and he would take handcuffs to the local police station or to the local newspaper office and have the, the officials from that institution find him. And then he would, of course, escape every time. Well, almost every time. Once in New York, early in his career, a police sergeant who was patting him down thought that he saw something under Houdini's toes. And apparently there was some kind of small pick uh, underneath his foot that maybe had squeezed between his toes. He didn't deal with the idea of magic at all. He dealt with the idea of, uh, of trickery, of stunts. Celebrated magician Lance Burton. Houdini invented the whole idea, I think, of uh, being an escape artist. He's the one that, that really made that into a big deal. I think he did that by hooking into people's emotions. It's not just a guy going in a box and then getting out of the box. It was a guy risking his life. By 1899, the tricks of 25-year-old Houdini became even more daring and bizarre. He went to an insane asylum, and he was allowed to watch a an inmate in the uh, asylum struggling inside a straitjacket and he got the idea that it would make a good escape. He started presenting it hiding behind a, a cloth or in a small cabinet out of sight of the audience. But then he got the idea of doing it out in front of the audience just on the stage and letting them see how he got out. He was doing the straitjacket escape in his show and he had this crazy idea of why don't we hang Houdini upside down, you know, downtown uh, out of a window. And, and thousands and thousands of people will gather around and watch this nut hanging upside down trying to get out of a straitjacket. The most important fact about a straitjacket escape is it's easier to do upside down. <laughs> Much easier to do because you have the weight of your arms helps you pull it up over your head. But to Houdini's fans, the straitjacket stunt appeared life-threatening. The snow job of the straitjacket escape hanging up high is really phenomenal. What difference does it make? whether you're six inches off the ground, or whether you're 200 feet off the ground, if you're completely secured in place, you're trying to get out of a straitjacket, it makes no difference at all. Crowds obviously loved Houdini. I mean, from newspaper accounts that we have, uh, the applause was always thunderous, and people shouted and waved their hats. Hanging in a straitjacket over Times Square for a nation of immigrants, saying, I defy the jails of the world to hold me. There's nothing, uh, there's nothing more American than that. Calling oneself an escape artist, uh, self-liberationist, is just the most purely patriotic American thing that we could possibly have. A true hero.
a true hero. And you're listening to some of the greatest musicians presently, magicians, not musicians, presently working in the United States of America. The life of Harry Houdini. And my goodness, he understood the intersection of magic and the media. And I think it was much more the media that he understood and the American people and their emotional life than anything else. When we come back, we're going to hear more about this remarkable American life. Harry Houdini, who died on this day in history from a punch to the stomach in 1926, the son of an unemployed rabbi living in Wisconsin, coming to Brooklyn and coming to the biggest city, not only in America, but in the world. More after these messages. Our American Stories and our This Day in History, the life of Harry Houdini, who died on this day in history from a punch to the stomach back in 1926. And as always, our This Days in History are brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College, one of the greatest places in this country to study all of the finest things in life, from religion to philosophy to history and everything in between. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you Go to hillsdale.edu and take a look at their terrific online courses. And their C.S. Lewis course is just too good to be true. And their Constitution 101 course, well, that's a better better education I got on the Constitution than having spent three years at one of the nation's best law schools at the University of Virginia. Again, that's hillsdale.edu. And now let's return to this story, the tale of a man who is considered by most to be the best and greatest and perhaps first escape artist of all time, Harry Houdini. In his head, I think Houdini was always performing for his mother. I mean, that was really the audience. She was the one that he really wanted to mystify and captivate and, and please. And her death was very, very, very tough for him. Houdini couldn't bear to let his mother go. He started uh, attending seances and, and visiting mediums in a sincere effort to contact his mother and see if uh, there was any way to communicate with her after her death. He went to the spiritualist because he wanted to contact his mother, and he was uh, very, very hurt and mad because he discovered all these spiritualists he went to were using magician's tricks. Houdini thought they were wicked. They would prey on poor people to hear the voices and spend their last dollar. Because he was a magician, he recognized the techniques that these mediums were using to fool people into thinking that there indeed was some contact from their dead relatives. He began a, a crusade, there's really no other word for it, to debunk mediums and spiritualists. Houdini attended seances in disguise. Once he figured out the deception, he'd reveal his true identity and expose the scam. He uh, was uh, the first really famous magician to say, I'm doing tricks 
and so are they. Beginning in 1924, 50-year-old Houdini made his findings public. He went around the country lecturing against the spiritualists, and he gave an hour demonstration, show how they were able to make trumpets blow and so on. He spent over a million dollars that one year exposing spiritualists. I don't think Houdini ever said he didn't believe it was possible to contact uh, the dead. He was always hoping that he could, and he was always looking to find someone who was genuine. Houdini's obsession with death often pushed him to accept even more dangerous challenges. He was always tempting death, and he was a daredevil. He had that kind of uh, temperament. One of the stunts, he stood on the top of a biplane and jumped into, handcuffed into Lake Michigan. He was always taking pretty big chances. In the winter of 1925, 51-year-old Houdini made his debut on Broadway. Audiences were thrilled to see his death-defying stunts. The most spectacular uh, individual trick, if you want to call it that, that Houdini presented in his career was the Chinese water torture cell. They would, had this large uh, cabinet filled with water, and they would tie his ankles and his hands and lift him head first down into the cell. When Houdini is put into that, uh, there is a big feeling of, oh no, he's going to die, he's going to suffer, this is going to be miserable, but then he gets out okay. And that's when you know it's been art. But in many ways, Houdini's art was torture. He suffered countless injuries on stage, from broken bones to internal bleeding. Still, Houdini continued to push himself. And finally, in the fall of 1926, the 52-year-old illusionist faced the reality of his failing health. He was performing in Canada at the time that he first became sick. Um, there are accounts that he may have had appendicitis for a little bit of time before uh, the incident that provoked it or aggravated it. The famous story is that he was in his dressing room in Montreal and a, a student asked him, can I punch you in the stomach? One young man said, you mean you could withstand a punch in your stomach with all my force? And Houdini nodded. And the young man struck him without any preparation or telling him, and it burst his appendix. Historians aren't sure right now whether he indeed had appendicitis before that time, and the punch just ruptured his appendix or uh, aggravated his condition in some way. Sick and in great pain, 52-year-old Houdini maintained his strenuous schedule. He was asked to see a doctor in Montreal, and he refused because he had a rather important engagement in Detroit. He went to the theater and performed and collapsed. It turned out that he had a ruptured appendix, and the ruptured appendix uh, caused peritonitis to set in. Peritonitis comes from the bacterium, appendicitis comes from the bacterium, and that couldn't have been given to him by a punch in the stomach. He must have had it before. But that punch to the gut no doubt made a bad situation worse. With his wife Bess and his brother Hardeen at his bedside, Houdini took his final bow. On Halloween in 1926, a week after he had been punched in the stomach, he passed away. He simply said that he couldn't stand the pain anymore, he couldn't take it anymore. He died in his brother's arms on, on October 31st when he finally gave up. He said to Hardeen, I have to give up. Houdini biographer Ken Silverman. Houdini's death really made, it made his front page news, and I mean front page, it was big headlines. And the interesting story is Houdini was traveling around the country with a coffin in tow and uh, he died on the road and they actually shipped his body back to New York in the coffin 
that he was uh, carrying around to rehearse this Buried Alive trick. The funeral in New York was a, a huge event. Crowds all over the street, uh, police sal saluting him and uh, people out to, to watch. Because he had a long-standing relationship with, with the press, they, they followed him in death as they did in life. Houdini's widow, Bess, also held on to the hope that if it was at all possible, her husband of 31 years would contact her from beyond the grave. After Houdini's death, Bess Houdini held a seance for 10 years running, starting in Hollywood, trying to see whether she could get back in touch with uh, Houdini. They set up a code before he died to uh, try to communicate with each other. Bess and Harry agreed their secret code would be Rosabelle Believe, but Bess learned from Houdini himself to be skeptical. Finally, in 1936, after 10 years of attending seances, Bess acknowledged that Houdini was gone for good. Houdini never, never said he would come back from the dead. That's an that's a absolute mistake. Houdini said if anybody could come back, being Houdini, he would do it. Houdini was someone who fought for rational thought, no supernatural, and remembering him with as anything except a man of science and a man of truth and a straightforward man who believed in physics is just a spit in a hero's face. For generations of fans, Harry Houdini will be remembered as a hero. No matter what he had done, he wanted to find a more daring, more challenging way of doing it. He said to a reporter in Australia in one of his visits there, he says, I want to be number one, it is all I ask. Houdini was really the first uh, magic superstar and maybe the first superstar in show business. He is the thought of a century. He really is the idea that we can think our way through things. And it's a, it's a powerful idea that is emotional and at the same time intellectual. And we don't have any other stars in the 20th century that have come close to that. You know, when you think of it today, when you think of U2 playing a concert, you know, in, in the middle of an intersection, stopping traffic, well, We've all seen the footage of you two doing that, but that's Houdini. Houdini started that. Even though he was a superb showman, in private life he was a kind, compassionate, very caring person. So the Frank Sinatra of magic, exactly. He was sort of like the evil Knievel of his, of his day. Jack Dempsey, Babe Ruth, and Houdini. Uh, I think they had become legends. 200 years from now, there will be some scholars who will talk about Elvis Presley, but I think they'll still be uh, talking about your boyfriend pulling a Houdini. And even today, so many decades after his death, many of Houdini's secrets are still secure. Houdini's lucky, but we still don't know how he did a lot of his things. I am the only living person that was closely connected with Houdini. Houdini swore me to secrecy, and I've never divulged anything since. Houdini was a product of his time. I think if somebody would say to me, could anybody do a Houdini today? I don't think so. Every time you talk about freedom, every time you live freedom, you are working towards it. And it's part of the, uh, the constant work of, of keeping things free. And I think that even on that silly, cartoony level of throwing off handcuffs and throwing off straitjackets, that uh, it's still very, very important. And it gets people saying the word freedom. And, I mean, I'll repeat it forever, I defy the jails of the world to hold me. It's is kind of like an American anthem. And this is Our American Stories, the life of Harry Houdini celebrated. So many notable magicians in that piece. 
And if you ever get a chance, go to the Magic Castle in Los Angeles. You've got to get somebody to get you in. You've got to know Magician. It's just a remarkable, remarkable place. My first show, Doug Henning. I saw the show Magic in New York City. I'd never seen anything like it before. And, well, go to Vegas, and there's still plenty of these grand and great magic acts. This, again, is our American story. The life of Harry Houdini celebrated. He died on this day in history in 1926. our American stories and not too long ago a headline caught our attention here on the show college students flood mental health centers and I had spent a good deal of my time at one part of my life prepping kids for SATs and ACTs and I was good at it I ultimately got myself into a top law school from this trickery and this was back in the day when you didn't have to work hard to get into college and you could even probably not work too hard and get into some pretty good law schools and graduate schools But the 25 to 30 years since, I still help kids in my church and around my town, and the pressures on them are remarkable. So this headline did not surprise us here. And the story featured one particular professor, Dr. Kip Pietrantonio, and he joins us now, and he's a clinical psychologist at Ohio State University. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Hey, thank you very much. You know, we talked in the the break about the pressure on students before they get to college. And so before we deal with some of the things you're dealing with with students at the college, let's talk about the ever-increasing pressures on students to get into the flagship universities at the state level. By the way, as you well know, Professor, you know, 30, 25, 30, 40 years ago, not a real, you know, not a real, real rough struggle to get into some of our, our better state universities. But today, it's a bloodbath. That's exactly right. Do you know what the average SAT score for getting into Ohio State University is? No. What is it? It's a 29. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's the average. And so half the students are above that. And so that's exactly right. There's just an incredible amount of competition that these students are feeling uh, before they even get into school. Uh, before we were on the air, we were talking about, you know, when they're kids, they are, they, some of them have schedules that are, like, comparable to CEOs at major businesses. You know, they're going from thing to thing. They got football practice, they got basketball practice, they got Cub Scouts. They're going from that to the other meeting, the club meeting. They got to do the college prep stuff. And they're just going from thing to thing to thing. And like, uh, you know, they get, they see everybody else doing it. So there's like this intense competition that they feel and the parents are buying into it too. You know, so there ends up being like this kind of like, uh, like perceived cycle of success that goes round and round and round and round. So it's almost an arms race of a sort, a sort of a, a, a curriculum building, scheduling building, resume building arms race on these kids. Yeah, and that's that's exactly right. It, that, that's a great way of putting it. It is a little bit of an arms race. Uh, and then you fuel it on top of it with social media, you know, and everybody's looking at everybody else's highlight reel. You know, so everybody else is having all these successes and they're posting it and they're posting these beautiful pictures of themselves and everything. And so everybody is only looking at the other successes of everybody else. And nobody's looking, nobody's posting like, didn't get into the college. Right, know? right. <laughs> so. Yeah, I had a really crummy trip or, you know, I'm really bored today and <laughs> nothing much is happening in my life. None of that stuff. 
Right, exactly. Nobody posts that stuff. And so, yeah, these college students who are just immersed in social media at all times, they, uh, there's that, it really fuels that, uh, that comparison. Yeah, and tell me about what you think uh, the costs of college uh, have to do with all this, too. Because, my goodness, I sometimes think about how parents are putting themselves into hock and kids are going into tremendous debt, young people, to attend school. And th- this financial pressure has to add to these other, uh, other kinds of pressures, too, Professor. Oh, that's exactly right. And actually, uh, my primary on top of the uh, uh, clinical work that I do, my primary area of research is actually looking at finances and how finances affect people. And so, uh, what we're actually seeing is back in the you know back in the '60s, '70s, even in the '80s, you know, you fail physics in college, eh, you know, it's not a big deal. You take it the next semester, you know, take it again, take it with a different professor, maybe. But you know what happens now? You fail physics and you have to stay another year. That might cost you twenty, thirty thousand dollars. You know, so now what do you think that does to test anxiety? Oh my god. Because goodness. some of these right, so some of these classes, there's five hundred people in the class. So if you have five hundred people in the class, and the best way that we can the only way they can teach to five hundred people is you have to do mass multiple to, a multiple choice question tests. Well, if you're a person who doesn't respond well to those kind of tests, yeah, you're <laughs> you know, in trouble. It's, it's, Right, you're in trouble, so your anxiety is just sky high because this test is no longer about getting an A or a B or a C in physics. It's about the level of debt you're going to be in when you finish school, and debt has gone up just dramatically in the last 20 years. You know, we're talking, you know, a lot of students are finishing with sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars 80000 in debt. No, it's crazy, and, and sometimes if the students are, and it means their parents are jumping on that debt grenade, and then you've got to go back yeah. to the parents and tell them, you need to dip into that mortgage again and tap another line of credit. And either yep. way, the pressure, whether it's your own internal finances or that grandma or that parent helping you, you are, you are having to deal and deliver some bad news. When I was going to school, the tuition was $800. And I could work I part-time and cover that tuition. It was just you know such costs, a different time. You know what costs $800 now? Just the books. Yep. Just the books cost $800. Just so. the books. Just the books. And they yeah. need the phone and they need the laptop. and the, you, you, It's an arms race to keep up with all the technology that people have, too. And it's so, right. much, it's so much to take. So, so you're, you're, you're at, the, at the college. Tell us about the young undergrads that are coming onto your campus. Set the scene for us. I think we've done just a little, little bit of that. But now what's undergraduate life like at Ohio State? How's it changed from, let's say, 20 years ago? Um, well, I would say that the, the big change is kind of what we've been hitting on a little bit is like the high competition, you know, and how many students go to the school. So, I mean, we have 63,000 students. Well, the internships don't grow at that rate. Right. You know what I mean? So, like, everybody is uh, really, really trying really, really hard. And the amount of majors that are offered is really, really diverse. But what we tend to see is a lot of people like going into engineering, a lot of people trying to go into pre-med because you're one, if you're one of those people who has a, over 29 uh, SAT before they come in, those are the kinds of fields you're going into. Well, the problem is, is not everybody can be pre-med and not everybody can be engineering. So during that first year, what ends up happening is a lot of people have to kind of, they have to kind of do these weed out classes where people kind of get pushed into, you know, other majors and so some of the other majors are even, like, dependent on that a little bit, you know, to, because everybody can't be an engineer and everybody can't be a doctor. Right, right. And so that's a big part of it. And then, you know, I think there's just all the usual stuff. So you take these high-pressure situations, you add students having freedom for the very first time, 
And the level of substance use that students are using is, is really, really different than it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Like the marijuana that the Beatles smoked in the 60s is about like, you know, one-tenth of what is as potent as what kids are smoking nowadays. Yep. And so there's like a, it's just kind of a pressure cooker situation that just adamantly works against mental health. No you doubt. Know? <laughs> you know, I was reading an article in, uh, in, in one of the big New York magazines. I'm not sure if it was Vanity Fair or New York magazine. But a woman had followed some college students around on Thursday nights and looked at Tinder really carefully. And mm-hmm. she was just stunned. And Tinder, Tinder, for folks who don't know, is a dating app that's like a speed dating app in which you look at the picture of somebody, swipe one way, and it's, uh, I like this person, swipe the other way, I don't. And it's brutal in its efficiencies, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very tough. And she followed both boys and girls, and the impact this was having on, on, on the lives of these kids, she thought was, she came away saying, look, I'm no Luddite, and I, I love technology, but this Tinder thing is making life mm-hmm. really hard on our kids. Uh, it was, a, it was a, it, and so now we add on these other technological things that are happening to our kids that add even more social pressure. Talk about that, if you can. For a second as well. Yeah. Well, and I, I could talk about Tinder in particular because uh, I actually spend a lot of time talking about it. And I think it's a little bit of a double edged sword because, on one hand, uh, it's, you know, it is exactly what you said. It's kind of brutal, it's kind of intense, you know what I mean? But on the other hand, if you're a, a person who's very shy yep. and, you didn't, and you're not good at just approaching some random person at a bar, it can be a way of meeting people that's like a lot safer and slower paced and you can like chat with them beforehand. So it's kind of like a, I think like a lot of this technology stuff that our millennial students are working through is on one hand, it makes you like more efficient is really helpful and really like allows students to like kind of expand and extend themselves. And on the other hand, there's like this dark side to it. Yep. Right? Let, let's hold that thought, that dark side. And there's upside. There's no doubt about it. We know this from Facebook, too. We get to post. We get to share. At the same time, we have to live up to the expectations of everybody else sharing. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. College students flood mental health centers. We're covering this story with a professor of clinical psychology at Ohio State University. And that is Dr. Kip Petrantonio. More after these messages. American Stories, and we're talking to Dr. Kip Petrantonio, a clinical psychologist at Ohio State University, and he was the subject of a feature in the Wall Street Journal, College Students Flood Mental Health Centers, and we rejoin him, and let's talk a bit about some of the numbers. Uh, Ohio State has seen a 43% jump in the past five years in the number of students being treated at the university's counseling center. That one really jumped up at us, Professor Talk about that and what you think some of the causes are for that. Some of them, obviously, that we've discussed, but maybe some others as well. Well, one of the things is that finally college counseling centers are like we got a, we got a big um, increase in funding. We were very blessed to get that. 
And as a result, we got to hire a lot of uh, clinicians over the last few years. So one thing that's been happening over like the last 10 years is we've had to have like a wait list. And that wait list over time has like, you know, we've had to refer a lot of people out and now we can handle more and more in-house. So the demand is kind of almost always been there. But uh, college counseling just hasn't been able to handle, like, the supply and demand problem. Right. And so now that we have a lot more uh, staff because the, um, like, the chronicness of some of these mental health issues that we're seeing has really gone up. So that's put a lot of pressure on colleges to accept, you know, to hire a few more people. And so that's a big part of it right there. But, I mean, it's, it's all that stress and all that anxiety and the debt and the social media and all those things that we touched on a little bit earlier, they all kind of contribute and add. And um, and it's those first year classes, you know, the physics, the calculus, the chemistry, uh, going into those classes for the first time, you know, at a university where you're not, you know, at a high school where you can go talk to your teacher anytime you want, you know, it's just uh, all that stuff adds. Yeah. And, And what are some of the common ways that your university supports students? For example, what's this recess event? that your university has. What's that about? So uh, we do this recess event. It's pretty much a giant. We go out into the center of campus, and we set up all these different places for students to kind of play and have a, a like a release and kind of have a break for the day. So we have, like, they can grab, like, bubbles and blow bubbles. We have giant, like, inflatable things they can jump on. We have games that they can play. And it goes from this theory of play that play during, like, a high-stress environment can kind of reduce that stress cumulatively. And so uh, we try to introduce play on this whole day where we have this big old carnival in the middle of campus just to give students a little bit of a break or to have something really little fun, like some little fun thing. So we have them do art. They can do silly things. Like we have them kind of make magic wands, you know, like Harry Potter style, Uh, anything like that that we, that we do during the day just to kind of uh, get their um, minds, get their minds off things. Exactly. Right. Get their minds off things. So, and you had just come out of teaching what I thought was intriguing, which is a beating anxiety workshop. And by the way, you know, it's not as if pressure goes away when you're done with college. Some people really internalize anxiety too much, and then it inhibits performance. Mm-hmm. We know some of the world's greatest athletes are continually working on anxiety, stress, yep. and mind control. I, I was always stunned at how many of the great athletes I, I've ever heard of had coaches that coached them on these very things, especially golfers. Yeah. Uh, so oh, talk, yeah. talk about what you talk about with the students in this, in this workshop. It sounds fascinating. So how I kind of conceptualize the workshop is you've got to make it fun and you've got to make it engaging and you've got to make it applicable to millennials. So the first year that I did the workshop, every single week I would save 10 minutes at the end and just ask for feedback. And I would be like, what did you like? What didn't you like? And then I would change the workshop accordingly. And it's really produced some positive results. Like today I taught it. I think I had 80 students uh, stop in, you know, just to, just to visit. And there's no obligation to come or anything like that. They can come if they want. Some people get like a little bit of credit for class if they come for certain programs at the university. But we get a ton of people to come to it. Um, basically what I start with is I explain what anxiety is, which a lot of people don't fully understand from an evolutionary standpoint. So from the evolutionary standpoint, anxiety is our body kicks into fight or flight mode to help us manage, uh, you know, like life threatening situations. Okay. So our heartbeat goes faster. Our breathing is shorter. Like uh, we have shortness of breath. Our we are, body releases chemicals like adrenaline. Well, the thing is, is that is really great if you're running from a saber tooth tiger. Right. It's not very good for a physics test. Right. 
but our body still reacts the same to stress because evolution moves really slowly. So first thing is I go through that and I explain how that over time, if your body is constantly stressed out, you eventually start feeling depressed because your body will lose energy. So then I talk about the relationship between anxiety and depression and how they're kind of really the same thing. It's just the depression is kind of anxiety over a long period of time. So that's kind of the introduction and uh, students really like it. I use a lot of like silly examples. I use like examples about like Snapchat. So I give the example of like you text or Snapchat somebody on Friday night and you say, what are you doing tonight? And they don't send you any response. Where does your brain go? Well, every student starts laughing in the class. They're like, oh, I think all my friends hate me. Right. You know, <laughs> or I think that nobody, they're all at somebody's house having fun and they didn't invite me. You know, so we go through and talk about how that is that, like we call catastrophized thinking. That's the thinking that would be really, really helpful if we were running from a lion, but is really, really unhelpful in friendships. Right. You know, so first it's like drawing that connection. And then the second part is I explain how we beat anxiety. So how we beat anxiety is we got to do it from four different perspectives. We do it from a biological perspective. We do it from an emotional perspective. We do it from a cognitive perspective. And then we do it from a what do I do if I'm freaking out in the moment kind of perspective. And let's, and so, let's run them down. Yeah. Let's talk about the biological sure. perspective. Talk about that first. So the three things I talk about is uh, sleep, appetite, and exercise. So, and it's so funny because the first thing I always ask the students, I go, what's the first thing that, what are the three things that go during finals week? Sleep, appetite, and exercise. Because you eat foods you usually wouldn't eat, you barely sleep, and you skip exercising. So that's Sounds kind of like the last 10 years of my life, Professor. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, that, yeah, that's kind of what happens. And uh, those things each contribute significantly to anxiety. So if you're not sleeping at night, you're going to have less cognitive bandwidth to work with the next day. You're going to have less decision-making power. Your memory is not going to be as good. All of those things are going to contribute to anxiety. If you're uh, not eating good, like I always give the example in class of, like, eating a Chipotle burrito. It's delicious when you eat it, but when it's in your stomach – you feel sleepy, you feel tired, your energy level goes down. You know, it really affects your mood after you eat big, heavy foods. And a lot of students don't see that because they're eating like pieces of pizza or they're eating donuts or they're eating cookies, you know, all the time. So they don't see the, they don't see the connection between the food they eat and their mood. And so that's a big part of it. And then we have the other half of students who, you know, tend to not eat. They skip meals because they want to study more right. or they're, you know, slamming Red Bulls. And they, you know, helping them connect with, the, you know, if you slam a Red Bull, the chances of being anxious are dramatically higher, you know, yeah. so. So you got the biology right. covered. Then when we get to, the, yeah. and so basically the prescription is, look, you got to exercise, you got to eat better, if anything, and you, that'll get yeah. you to sleep better. Let's talk about right. the emotional side. Let's spend a minute on each of these. What do you sure. do on the emotional side, Professor? So I go through and I usually talk to him about what, what makes you feel better from an emotional standpoint. And the answer is talking. I mean, that's the basis of my field, right, is that talking makes you feel better. Well, then we talk about what kind of talking. You know, and I give an example of somebody being like, I hate this class. It's so stupid. It's dumb. And then your friend goes, well, it just sounds like you need to study harder. Yep. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's that's like completely frustrating. Yeah, that's right? helpful. And so we tell, I tell them, you know, advice tends not help people when they're upset. What we want is somebody to validate us, to make us feel like we're not alone, to be on our side. So I really encourage them to do that with their friends and then give their friends feedback to do that with them. The other piece is talking at depth. So I always kind of talk about, like, it's almost like a band of brothers thing. We have to talk at, like, a deeper level 
about things with each other. We can't always be talking about superficial surface level stuff. If you go through a breakup, you have to talk to your friends about it. Even though you have to feel vulnerable, you may feel kind of weak, you have to have that moment of connecting with people at that deeper level when you're really struggling. And so I give some examples of like, you know, breakups and things like that that happen where people have to like, you know, you have to connect, but you're not, you don't want to because you, you don't want to be viewed as weak. Yeah. You know, and so we talk about that and how that ends up being paradoxical. Um, from the cognitive perspective, I just talk about some like ways of managing the catastrophizing. So I, <clears throat> when people are doing the thing where they're going to the nightmare situation, like I send somebody a text on Friday night, they don't text me back. Well, <clears throat> usually what people will try to do is they'll try to rationalize. They'll go, oh, they're probably busy. Oh, they're probably, you know, they're probably in, in class or something. But that never works. Students never just think that and then stop being anxious, right? Right. <clears throat> right. Because most of the time what you think is, well, when I'm with the person, they're on their phone 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So how are they not on their phone right now? Exactly. You know, <laughs> so we have to go a little bit deeper. So I talk about addressing the fear and then kind of owning the fear. So the fear here is that people don't like you, right? Like they don't text you back because they don't like you. So what I tell them to do is really dive into that thought and embrace the idea that it's okay for some people in your life to not like you. In fact, it's inevitable that some people are not going to like you. And that's just to do with context. You know, somebody's not going to like you because you stole your parking spot. Somebody's not going to like you because you got a promotion and they didn't. You know, somebody's not going to like you because they don't like how the boss treats you versus how the boss treats them. You know, it's just inevitable in this world. So rather than like fretting over it, embracing that, hey, it's just, it's like fishing. You know, I'm going to cast out my line. Some people are going to bite and like me, and some people, some fish are not going to take the lure, you know? Well, you have have some lucky students, Professor, who are (laughs) able to access this, deal with the extraordinary amount being thrown at young people and the anxiety it creates. And we're talking to Dr. Kip Petrantonio, and we found out about the good work he's doing at Ohio State University an article you can just Google, College Students Flood Mental Health Centers on the Wall Street Journal. And, Professor, thank you for doing what you're doing. We'd love to stay in touch. This is a really fascinating subject. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all we do.